Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. This episode of HR Oxygen is brought to you by Boss Builders University. If you're looking to train up your supervisors and managers, please check out our newest offering, The Art of Being a Great Boss. In this 13-month program, I will personally be taking your managers through our driving results curriculum, and that includes topics on communication, performance management, motivation, delegation, problem-solving, decision-making, team development, and much, much more. The sessions are live, running virtually one hour each month, and I'll do it using our popular sketch and seminar graphic art and storytelling format. No boring PowerPoint, stale stories, and outdated tools and techniques. The sessions are engaging and provide tactical, practical tools that can be used immediately after the sessions. For more information, visit us online at thebossbuilders.com. We are just a month and a half or a month and a quarter into 2021, and from everything we can see so far early in this year, 2021 is pretty much a rerun of 2020. And one thing that we learned a lot in 2020 is that people did not handle the isolation very well, they didn't handle the stress very well, they didn't handle the unknown very well, which led to a lot of people recognizing anxiety and depression. Now that's a big challenge, but fortunately we have a guest today that is going to help us navigate through both of those conditions and offer us some ways that we can use fitness and nutrition to be able to overcome both anxiety and depression. Our guest today is Igor Klebanov. Now he is the CEO of Fitness Solutions Plus up in Canada. He's the author of a bunch of books on exercise and nutrition including Stop Exercising, The Way You're Doing It Now, The Mental Health Prescription, and other books. We're going to talk specifically today about The Mental Health Prescription, but you can also get yourself a copy of that book. He'll give you the link on that and access to the other books that he's written. He takes a topic that is really hard to understand and made it nice and understandable for a person like me, which means I know that you'll be able to get it. Really good information. So let's quit talking about Igor. Let's let him do the talking. It's time for us to put that personal item underneath the seat in front of us. Make sure your seatbelt is buckled. Time for us to take off. Should the cabin lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the overhead area. Please place the mask over your own mouth and nose before assisting others. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast, the show focused on the overworked, overwhelmed, and underappreciated HR professional. And now, here is the host of our show, the boss builder, Mac Monroe. Igor Klebanov, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mac. Yeah, I'm glad we could meet up today. The topic, I think, is a relevant one because as of the day of this podcast, we're in February of 2021. I think people are still emerging from the hell that was last year, hoping that things are different. And yet, from everything that we have seen, life is every bit as stressful as it was last year, which means that for HR professionals who are in the role of not only you know working for compliance, but also to be the pulse of the organization, it's something they need to be aware of. So we're going to talk specifically about mental health, and uh, we're going to be talking about your book, The Mental Health Prescription. So before we get into our questions, Igor, I was hoping you could share something about your journey with us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all throughout uh, high school, I really wanted to be in the fitness industry. Um, so in university, I was studying kinesiology, while concurrently working as a personal trainer. 
when I left university, I started my own business and um, and I tried to figure out how can I get the word out there about my business. And so the most uh, obvious thing to me came, uh, came which was public speaking. Um, I didn't really enjoy it at the time, but I thought it was the only method for a small business owner. Um, and But to my surprise, the more I did it, the more I liked it. And to get to, to do my speaking engagements, I went um, into corporations. And of course, to go into corporations, I had to work with HR. Um, and at first, I was speaking primarily about exercise and nutrition misconceptions, which is basically the topic of my fourth book called Stop Exercising the Way You Are Doing It Now. Now, for the first five, six, seven years or so, uh, that was my primary topic. There were a few others, but that was my primary topic. Um, about five, six years ago, I spoke to an HR manager um, explaining what I do and the topics that I speak about. But she asked me, do you also speak about mental health? At that time, I said, well, no, I have no personal or professional experience with it. Uh, so that we kind of just let that go. Uh, I spoke to the second HR manager. She asked the same thing. Do you do any talks about exercise and nutrition for mental health? And I said, same thing. No, no personal or professional experience with it. By the time the fifth or sixth one asked me, do you do talks about mental health? I said, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I devised my uh, my first presentation about mental health. So I actually had about I actually had to do the research on how does exercise and nutrition affect mental health beyond just the basics. Because when people people think about exercise and nutrition for mental health, the the only recommendation they get is exercise is good for you or go for a walk or do something like that. But I really wanted to know what's the best, not just what's a good way, what's the best way to exercise um, in a way that will improve your mental health. Because uh, you can spend an hour doing a good thing. We can spend an hour doing the best thing, and you're going to get better results doing the right thing. You know, um, I often say, hard work is important, but hard work in the right direction is better. <laughs> in other words, uh, the example I make is that if your goal is to run a marathon, you won't get there by bench pressing 200 pounds. <laughs> Likewise, if your goal is to bench press 200 pounds, you won't get there by running a marathon. They're both hard work. They're just hard work in the wrong direction. Same thing here. There are certain types of exercise that could make your mental health worse. So we want to do the best thing in the time that we have um, in the right direction. Um, and of course, the nutrition came along with that. I wanted to figure out not just not just eat healthy, don't eat junk and don't eat fast food, but what else can you do? What supplements can you take? What foods can you eat and not eat in order to improve your anxiety and depression? Uh, so that's so I did a lot of a lot of research on that. Came out with my book. The mental health prescription, which, by the way, is available to the to the uh, listeners of your of your podcast for free, if they just go to fitnesssolutionsplus.ca/mac m a c k, right. and uh, that's how I kind of got into the mental health field. That's great. Well, I want to talk about mental health, but let's go back to that new book. Any book that says the title is "Stop Exercising," that's the kind of book I want to buy. But I think there's more to that yes. title, though, isn't there? Yes. The subtitle is The Way You Are Doing It Now. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it takes a bit of a... Um, basically, when I speak to people, to audiences, uh, clients, uh, readers, etc., and I ask, what what are you most frustrated by? Fr frustrated by? They say, my inability to lose weight, or am I doing it right? Um, and then I ask them, well, what are you doing? And they explain to me what are they what, what they are doing. And I often see them making these con mistakes: too much cardio, stretching the wrong way, not enough strength training, not the proper amount of strength training, not paying proper uh, proper attention to their hormones and digestion, and things that are not exercise and nutrition per se, but will influence your exercise and nutrition like your hormones, your digestion, your stress, etc. So that's what that book goes into. And as the sub subtitle um, says, it's the seven dangerous facts 
that will backfire and cause you to stay fat or hurt yourself. Okay. Well, that's definitely a, a book that everybody needs to pick up. But let's talk about mental health. And so when we measure somebody's physical health, maybe we get them to step on the scale, maybe they get their blood pressure checked or whatever. But what is a way that we might be able to measure our mental health? Yeah, amazing question. Um, so un unfortunately, unlike cholesterol or diabetes, we can't look in the blood and say you have anxiety or depression. However, what we can do is we use questionnaires. Uh, so the primary questionnaire used to uh, assess anxiety is called STAI, which stands for State Trait Anxiety Inventory. Basically, it asks you a bunch of questions in regards to your symptoms, and you circle a number between zero and uh, either three or five, I don't, I don't recall. Uh, and the number basically uh, is, stands for uh, the frequency with which you feel it, monthly, weekly, daily, uh, hourly. Um, so that's how you assess anxiety. For depression, there is a different um, assessment, and that's called the BDI, Beck Depression Inventory. Uh, Beck's spelled with B-E-C-K, named after Randy Beck, the inventor of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, so that's essentially how you assess those. Now, there are certain physiological factors that could affect anxiety or depression. So you could, in the you could look in the blood at certain factors, but they are not conclusive to anxiety and depression. I go into those uh, in, in way more detail in, I think, chapter six of my book. But in a nutshell, you can check for certain hormones. Thyroid and blood sugar are very frequently tied to poor mental health. Um, a fast thyroid to anxiety, a slow thyroid to depression. Low blood sugar is tied to both. And there are certain diagnostic challenges with uh, with figuring out, does somebody have low blood sugar? Because there's no established um, baseline or marker of how low is low. Unlike high blood sugar, where everybody agrees, everywhere in the world, they agree that a fasting blood sugar of 7.0, sorry, in Canada, 7.0 millimoles per liter um, is, um, is the cutoff for high blood sugar. There's no established cutoff for low. So what is, I mean, okay, so we know we can do the STAI or the BDI. That's like an assessment. But can you describe what is anxiety and what is depression and what is the key difference between the two? Yeah, um, I'll start with the key difference, but then I'll go into some of the diagnostic criteria. The key difference is this. With anxiety, you're worried about the future. With depression, you're sad about the past. So it's, it's essentially future versus past. With anxiety, you're anticipating a bad outcome at some point in the future. That may or may not happen, and it may or may not be realistic, but it's there. Um, that's anxiety. Now, depression is you're thinking about the past, and you, your, your mind is stuck in the past, and you're worried or sad or guilty um, about the past, whether rationally or irrationally. Um, of course, everything seems rational to you, um, which is where psychotherapy comes in to help you question your own beliefs. Um, so those are the, the, the key differences. In terms of diagnostic criteria, there are, with, with depression, there are nine possible symptoms and somebody must have at least four of, out of the nine for a psychiatrist to say you have depression. Some of those symptoms include things like insomnia or hypersomnia, weight loss or weight gain without trying, loss of pleasure in activities that used to give you pleasure and others. So that's, that's one. Um, one uh, segment of the diagnosis, which is um, which is symptomatic. The other part um, of the diagnosis for depression includes time and impairment. In other words, it has to be going on for six months or longer. It cannot be attributed to any other medications or medical conditions, which again, the two most common conditions misdiagnosed as depression are a slow thyroid, as well as low blood sugar, 
and it has to cause social or occupational impairment. Only once somebody has all of those criteria, including four out of the nine symptoms, can a psychiatrist say you have depression. On the anxiety side of things, most of those criteria apply as well, but there are different symptoms. Um, there are 10 possible symptoms. Somebody has to have three out of the 10 for a psychiatrist to say you have anxiety, but all the other criteria apply. It cannot be attributed to any other medications or medical conditions. It has to cause social or occupational impairment, and it has to be going on for six months or longer. And again, only once somebody has met all those criteria can a psychiatrist say you have anxiety or what they call a generalized anxiety disorder. And the reason I say that is to distinguish it from other forms of anxiety, like agoraphobia, social anxiety, et cetera. Generalized anxiety disorder means there is no direct trigger. With social anxiety, for instance, um, you're scared by social situations. With agoraphobia, you're scared of being in, in large spaces. With claustrophobia, with small spaces, et cetera. So there's a direct, direct reason for it. In generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD, there's no specific trigger. You can't say, this causes me anxiety. You can just say, I'm a neurotic person in general. Wow. So with both of these, it's, and I don't know this, you probably know better than I do in terms of treatment for either one. Is it like, so a, there's going to see a psychiatrist, uh, B is there counseling and or medication as a treatment? It's like, yeah. Okay. Uh, the, yeah. The two most common treatments, uh, conventional treatments for both anxiety and depression. One is psychotherapy, which is done not for the psychiatrist, but by a psychologist or a counselor or a regular therapist. And the other one is medications. So for on the on the anxiety side of things, it's typically benzodiazepines. On the uh, on the depression side of things, it's either something called SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or a different class of medications called tricyclic antidepressants. So is it possible then if I have these diagnosed that the way that I exercise and diet, can that help alleviate the symptoms? 100%. Um, now, I, so I, I, let me retract it. And I, I can't say 100% because nothing works 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Not medications, not psychotherapy, not drugs, not surgery, not exercise, not, not nutrition. But having said that, from the research that I looked at um, for my book, which is very extensive, I, I looked at about 300 studies, and of those 356 made it into the book. But every single study that I looked at um, showed that exercise um, and or nutritional changes um, help improve um, anxiety and depression somewhere from on par with medications to better than medications. Wow. So could I guess you could use them in conjunction too. I mean, would, would a normal doctor or a psychiatrist prescribe an exercise program as well, or just the drugs or whatever? Typically, they'll just, a uh, conventional doctor, conventional uh, psychiatrist will only recommend drugs. Uh, they might, generally speaking, say you should also exercise, or you should go for a walk, but they won't give a specific exercise prescription of you should do this type of exercise at this intensity for this duration and this frequency. And there's a, a logical reason for it. A, they don't know, <laughs> and B, even if they did know, it's liability. Let's say they told their, their patient to go into strength training and the person injures themselves in the gym. Well, now they can blame the doctor or the psychiatrist. So for those two reasons, um, it's not typically recommended. Okay. So in your experience, can a person have both anxiety and depression? Oh, yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of people do. So the next, this begs the next question of what should somebody do if they have both? Um, and that's a great question because because the research on this is very scarce. But having uh, having worked with with uh, clients who have anxiety and depression, I've kind of uh, I have enough you know personal experience and personal data to help figure it out. Um, either you have 
your, your dominant issue is anxiety and a, and a subdominant is depression or vice versa. And so how do you figure out what's more appropriate for you? Um, in chapter six of my book, it actually talks about it literally, it's called how to individualize. And it's, it's basically a matter of trial and error, it's, it's testing. Um, and I'll give you an example. The best intensity of exercise for depression is high intensity. You wanna breathe hard, you wanna be out of breath, you wanna be sweating, et cetera. However, high intensity exercise is very bad for anxiety. Great for depression, bad for anxiety. The best intensity of exercise for anxiety is actually moderate, better than low, better than high. Um, and so what if you have both? Do you do high intensity or do you do moderate intensity? So I devised a very simple questionnaire that somebody fills out before a workout and then immediately after a workout. So you do a workout at, for example, high intensity. Fill out the questionnaire before the high intensity workout, fill out the questionnaire after the high intensity workout. If the questionnaire is worse after the high intensity workout, don't do that again. The next workout, try a moderate intensity workout and see if that makes it better. Um, and again, if you're basically testing a bunch of different things until one of them shows an improvement in the way you feel after the workout. Yeah, I guess that's the only way you could really do it. But it doesn't sound like there's that many people that are really digging deep into the exercise piece of anxiety and depression. In your experience, are there is that something that's done a lot or are you one of the lone voices in this field? Yeah, I'm pretty much the only voice in this field because um, I love to take courses. If there's somebody who's already aggregated the information and is presenting it in one concise course, I would rather take that than do the research on my own um, and, and figure things out. However, nobody's, no, nobody offers courses on this. Um, I've in, uh, I read about 70 to 80 books per year, and I've only seen one book in, the, in, every, in, every, in, my, in my 15 years of personal training that actually talks about how to use exercise for depression. So I had to go and do the original research about how to use exercise for anxiety and depression. Are you seeing it, because you're up in Canada, are you seeing an increase in the anxiety and depression because of COVID and lockdowns? And from what you can see down south of the border to the U.S. here, um, are you seeing that as well? I'm just curious. Yeah, great question. Um, in Canada, I'm certainly seeing more more depression. I don't know about anxiety, but certainly more depression. And I think the people hit the hardest uh, by this are the extroverts. Uh, for example, me, all I need for my entertainment is a great book. Uh, that's fine. Now, if my idea of a good time was going out to party and I couldn't do that, um, that would be way harder for me than, you know, than a, than a good book to read um, versus further for further south um, in, in the US, um, I do see slightly more anxiety versus depression. Uh, just just for your observation, I'm not really sure as to the mechanisms or why, but just just an observation. Yeah, it seems like it would be, you know, the anxiety over the unknown, which, of course, we still have a lot of that. Yes. And then depression, because this is a great definition you gave of things that happened in the past. Is it maybe that we miss going out to clubs, miss being with our families. Do you think that's increasing the depression half of that problem? Yeah, family gatherings, absolutely. Like certain uh, certain cultures, certain nationalities are very family oriented. For example, in, Itali in Italian cultures or in Indian cultures, um, family is a very, very big thing. Whereas in other cultures, it's more of an individualistic society, like uh, for example, Americans or British descent. Um, so they are more they're more individualistic so i so i think if you're from an individualistic society and you're an introvert you haven't been hit very hard at all whereas if you're from a more family oriented culture and you're an extrovert you've been hit very hard okay yeah i can definitely see it uh especially with family i was talking to my mom yesterday and we were talking about that specifically and it has it's taken its toll on people so 
Uh, your work, Igor, is absolutely important, and I suspect you're going to be getting very busy. But uh, let's go back now. We, you've, you've talked to me and said that for depression, the best type of exercise is the high intensity. For anxiety, it's moderate. But exercise is only part yes. of this. So can we talk about nutrition, uh, specifically for anxiety and then specifically for depression? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, the first thing when it comes to nutrition for either one is, uh, again, I want to emphasize that you want to rule out other conditions. The two most common conditions that uh, that are misdiagnosed for depression are uh, slow thyroid, hypothyroidism, and low blood sugar. So if that is your case, you want nutrition for low blood sugar and hypothyroidism, not nutrition for depression. Um, Likewise, for anxiety, the two most common misdiagnosed conditions are hyperthyroidism or fast thyroid and also low blood sugar. So again, if those are your issues, you need to be eating for low blood sugar and you need to be eating for, um, for, for either hyper or hypothyroidism. Having said that, let's say you don't have low blood sugar, it's normal, um, and you don't have uh, hyper or hypothyroidism. Let's say it's true anxiety and it's true depression. Then what do you do? The first thing you want to do is you want to um, identify inflammation. Now, what's what's how, how does that work? I mean, anxiety and depression are, are psychiatric conditions. Inflammation is an immune condition. What's the connection? Well, when uh, when somebody somebody's inflamed, the part uh, the, the part of the brain that's responsible for reward or the secretion of a neurotransmitter called dopamine is inhibited. Um, that uh, that that part. Um, is is called the reward center of the brain. Okay, it's called the basal ganglia in anatomical terms. Um, and so we want to find out why is somebody inflamed to begin with. Um, and there are different ways of doing it. Uh, very often, it's because of poor digestion. Even if somebody is not complaining about digestive issues, one of the studies that I read for this book is researchers recruited a number of people who suffered from who suffered from depression but had no gastrointestinal complaints. And they put these people on a gluten-free diet for, for three days and saw what happened. So one group went on a gluten-free diet, one group, one group did not go on a gluten-free diet. They ate regular food, but they were told it was gluten-free, so placebo. Um, and what they found is that over three days, the gluten-free group improved their symptoms. The, the group that did, not, that, that, uh, that did receive gluten um, did not improve their symptoms. In fact, they, they continued to get worse. Okay, so. And I'm not, I'm not throwing gluten under the bus here because it's a very trendy thing to do. Uh, but there is more, uh, there are more people with depression who also have gluten problems compared to people with uh, without depression. Okay. In the general population, celiac, outright celiac disease is about 1% of the population. Now, there is also a concept called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And depending on which which research paper you read, it could be somewhere between 15 and 25% of the population of the general public. Now, in the population that has depression specifically, it's a higher percentage. Okay, so that's something that uh, that that must be uh, worked out for. So, one of the things that needs to be done, gluten is just an example, but it's also about identifying your food sensitivities. And there is a low tech way of doing it and a high tech way of doing it. The low tech way is what's called the elimination diet. So for somewhere about two to four weeks, you eliminate between five and eight of the most common food sensitivities in North America, which are gluten, dairy, sugar, including natural sugar like honey, uh, maple syrup, agave nectar, stuff like that, um, eggs, and, um, and, and, and nightshade vegetables. Okay, that's things like tomatoes, potatoes, bell peppers, chili peppers, and eggplants. So you eliminate those for, again, anywhere between two and four weeks, 
complete elimination, and then on day 15 or day 29, you bring one of them back for two to three days, just one of them. And then you see what happens. Is your mental health better, worse, or no different? If it's better or no different, then keep it in the diet. If it's worse, keep it out of the diet. You know, you're sensitive to that, and you should, you should probably keep it out more or less permanently. Although you can retest once every six months. If you had no reaction to the first food you brought in, three days later, bring back a second food, and then a third food, and, and the fourth food, and whatever else you eliminated, but one at a time. Okay, um, and noting again your your reactions to these foods is your mental health better, worse, or no different? Again, if it's better or or no different, then you can probably keep it in the diet permanently. If it's worse, you should take it out of the diet permanently. Um, so that's uh, that, that, so that's the low tech way. Uh, there's pros and cons to low tech way. There's also the high tech way. The high tech way is laboratory testing. There are a few great laboratories. Um, some of them sell direct to consumers, some of them don't. Um, that actually you just spit inside a test tube, send it back to the laboratory, and it'll come back with a list of foods that you may be sensitive to. And again, there's pros and cons to both. The pros to the uh, elimination diet is one, uh, accuracy. If you eliminate a food and you bring it back in and your body reacts to it, you don't need a blood test to tell you you're, that's not a good food for you. The other upside to the low-tech method is price. It doesn't cost anything. It might, might actually save you, save you a few bucks. The, there's also downsides to it. The downside, of course, is how vigilant you have to be about elimination. Um, this is not like a weight loss diet. This is an immune sensitization diet. In other words, you can't bring a weight loss mentality to it in the, in the sense that I can have one cheat meal per week. You can have cheat meals, just not cheat meals containing those specific foods. Those specific foods have to be completely out for two to four weeks, like 100%, not 99, but 100% out for two to four weeks. Uh, so you have to be extremely, extremely vigilant and for some people it's very, very difficult. So that's uh, con number one. Con number two is that you're making the assumption that the foods that you are eating, you're not sensitive to. In other words, you eliminated, you eliminated five foods, but you kept a lot of other foods. So you might've kept rice, you might've kept chicken or turkey or broccoli or spinach or whatever. You're unlikely to be sensitive to it, but it's not impossible, you might be and you might not know it because you're eating it all the time, okay? So those are the pros and cons of the low-tech method. There's also pros and cons to the high-tech method. The pros, number one, accuracy. Um, if you get a good test, and again, I emphasize good because there's a lot of bad ones out there, but if you get a good test, it's very, very accurate. The other upside to the high-tech method is you don't have to eliminate anything. Um, and the other upside, the third upside is speed. You find out in somewhere between five and 10 business days, depending on the laboratory. But there is one downside, and that's uh, that's cost. It's not free. Certainly in Canada here, it's not covered by our health insurance system, um, and uh, it can cost somewhere between four uh, four fifty and seventeen fifty US. Okay, uh, so those are pros and cons of both methods. When budget allows, I always ask my clients to go for the high tech method because of accuracy and speed. Um, when budget doesn't allow, uh, the elimination diet is, is a great substitute and very very accurate. Okay. Um, so that's the nutrition side of things for depression. For anxiety, I would also go and figure out what you're sensitive to. But in addition to that, a couple of the biggest considerations are energy drinks, and that includes caffeine. Um, in anxiety, your, your, your heart rate is already pretty high. Um, add in energy drinks, caffeine, et cetera, and it might be even higher. Um, and coffee in and of itself is not as bad as actual energy drinks. Um, I don't know if I can name any brands, but uh, but in general, anything containing over 100 milligrams of caffeine or more, um, which is typical energy drinks, should probably be kept out or at least tested 
if you should keep it out and route, route a two to four week test of complete elimination of those energy drinks and then bring it back in on day 29 and see if your, if your anxiety symptoms are worse. You know, it's interesting as I'm listening to all that, I think if you were trying to diagnose yourself, you could really screw yourself up. I mean, if you have anxiety and say, well, I don't have energy, I'm nervous all the time, let me go get a Red Bull. You're just making the problem yeah. worse, right? Well, the second challenge I see, I mean, you have your challenges with your, uh, uh, you, the high tech method and low tech and that low tech, what do you eat for two weeks? It sounds like all you can have is ice cubes. I mean, what else? Can you <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get a lot of stuff, but there's still a ton you can eat. Almost every single vegetable is on the table. Almost every piece of meat, fish, and seafood is on the table. Uh, rice is fine. Peas are fine. Beans, lentils, um, all those things are, are just fine. Potatoes are fine. Um, depending if you choose to eliminate the nightshades or not. Um, so there's still a lot you can eat. Uh, now, granted, you can't eat bread, you can't eat pasta, you can't eat stuff like that, but there's still a lot of things that you can easily eat. Well, hell, I'd get depressed just eating that part of the diet, but... I guess you got to do what you got to do, huh? Sorry, and that, that's why very often, if if budget allows, I'll recommend the high-tech method. Yeah, I think <laughs> I like that better myself. So that's almost a uh, natural way to deal with it. Are there any supplements that we could take in addition to once we kind of figure out the dietary part of this to make up for things, or is the diet alone enough? Yeah, um, diet alone is often good. Sometimes it's enough, sometimes it's not enough. Um, but whether you want to go the diet route or not, taking supplements by themselves um, helps, okay? Now, I know a lot of people, um, especially in the alternative health industry, they'll say no. Um, nutrition first, supplements second, but the research doesn't back it up. In research, if the researchers give supplements to people, they tell them, just take the supplement. Don't make any nutritional changes. Don't exercise. Don't make changes in psychotherapy or medications. Just take the supplement. We want to see the change, the effects of just supplement alone. Because if you change a bunch of things, if you take a supplement and you change your diet, we don't know what caused the change. Is it the supplement or the diet? So even when supplements are studied in isolation of any dietary changes, they work. Okay. Um, sorry, some of them work, a lot of them don't. But there are there are a few that work really, really well. So let's backtrack and say that one of the root causes of our anxiety and depression is low blood sugar, supplements that can really help support and stabilize blood sugar are things like chromium, L-carnitine, and, and the B-complex vitamins. This vitamins B1, B2, B3, and all of them, okay? That's if low blood sugar is a contributor. If low blood sugar is not an issue, then there are other supplements that can really help with anxiety and depression. On the anxiety side of things, magnesium is a natural benzodiazepine. Uh, which is one of the most common classes of drugs of medications for anxiety so and, and there are different kinds of magnesium you walk into a health food store there's a whole dizzying array <laughs> of magnesium supplements from magnesium chloride to magnesium citrate to magnesium oxide and glycine and so on the two that are most appropriate ones are magnesium glycinate and magnesium threonate so that's very important the other ones also vitamin b complex works very well so does a herb um, called ashwagandha, which lowers cortisol levels, as well as another herb called kava. These are four supplements that could be very, very effective uh, for anxiety. Now, the, the key is A, getting high quality supplements, and B, using the right dose. Because if you're a naturally larger person, you're going to need a higher dose. Just like if you're a larger person, you need more calories to eat, to just, just to not die. <laughs> Um, same thing here. It's about figuring out the right dose. And I believe chapter seven um, and eight of my book talk about the, how to figure out the right dose for your body. Um, that's on the anxiety side of things. 
on the depression side of things, there are also helpful supplements there. Um, one of the most helpful supplements is called SAME, S-A-M-E, which stands for S-adenosyl methionine. And that can be very helpful in doses of somewhere between 400 and 1600 milligrams per day. The other one that has been shown to be very effective um, in, in depression is zinc. Good old zinc, very, very common and, uh, and very rich in things like pumpkin seeds, oysters, stuff like that. Um, what's interesting about zinc is that there are cases of what's called resistant depression. Resistant depression means that you're already taking antidepressants and they're not working. They're not improving your depressive symptoms. Zinc helps those medications work better. It makes them more effective. Okay, so, so far we have zinc, we have SME, uh, S and the last one is something called inositol. Inositol is a B vitamin, or I should say a B-like vitamin. Um, and what it does is it helps, it helps stabilize the cell membranes of brain cells. So those three could be very, very helpful for somebody who has depression. And of course there are others based on if somebody does have the low blood sugar or the, the faster or the slow thyroid. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of treatment options for those two conditions, which I'm guessing are, are more and more of a challenge these days. So the last thing I want to ask you, Igor, is for the listeners now. So if I have an individual that says, you know, based on everything I've heard today from Igor, I think I have these conditions, or maybe it's somebody that says, I really want to get my health together. Could an individual work with you, even though you're up in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my team and I, we always do virtual coaching. Mm -hmm. uh, if they do want to reach out and figure out if we can help them, um, I don't know if we can, but it's worth an assessment. Uh, and we do offer complimentary initial assessments just to figure out, can we help you? If we can, awesome, we'll take you on as a client. If we can't, we will let you know that up front and we'll refer you elsewhere. Uh, but if you do wanna get in touch and figure out, uh, should I do this or not? Uh, you can, there's one of two ways you can do it. You can either um, go to my website and fill out the application form, which is fitnesssolutionsplus.ca, or send me an email at igor, I-G-O-R, at torontofitnessonline.com. Okay. Now, for the HR professional who's listening right now and is thinking about the workforce, the mental health of the workforce, and would be interested in engaging you to partner with them. Now, how would they reach out to you, Igor? Uh, great question. So they can also uh, email me at the same email, or they can go to my other website and fill out the application form there, which is wellnessseminars.ca. Okay. And you mentioned you do, do you still do speaking? Yep, I do, uh, especially during COVID, there's been a lot more talks about mental health. So I'll do, uh, I'll, uh, instead of seminars, I'm doing webinars. <laughs> okay, no, that's great. So if somebody as an HR professional would like you either to do a seminar for them or maybe speak at their chapter meeting or a state conference, you would be up for that too, right? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Okay, and so the best way is by email or is there a third site we could yep. go to for that? <laughs> uh, uh, email or, or wellnessseminars.ca. Perfect. Okay. Well, Igor, this has been really enlightening. I learned an awful lot today and I really appreciate you taking the time to break it down into a language that regular people like myself can understand. And so if you're listening today, again, please take Igor up on his offer. That was again, uh, let's see, it was uh, fitnesssolutionsplus.ca slash Mac and they get a free downloadable copy of your book there, the one we've been talking about, correct? Exactly. Awesome. Well, Igor, I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. 
Thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom with us. Max, thank you so much for getting the word out. It's a very, very important topic, and I hope you will benefit from it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the HR Oxygen Podcast. We hope you found something today that will relieve your stress, feed your soul, and pump you up to face another day. At Boss Builders, we want to let you know that we appreciate the hard work you do every day as an HR professional. And as a reminder, always make sure to adjust your own oxygen mask before attempting to help those around you. Be well.